if you Google what does CRM stand for, you should get a response that says something around along the lines of customer relationship management. And I don't think that law firms are aspiring to have customers. I think in the true sense of the word, they have clients, they have deep relationships, they're not transactions. So that's not to say that a firm that's selling a transactional-based or commoditized style of work wouldn't benefit from a more of a CRM. But, but in, in the end, I think that the subtleties, and while they seem subtle, actually add up to, to big differences. Welcome to Professionally Challenged, war stories from leaders driving change in law firms. Your hosts are Rob Patterson of Parkins Lane Consulting Group and Paul Evans of Toro Digital. Welcome to another episode of Professionally Challenged. Today, we're joined with Steve Tyndall, who is the founder and director of ClientSense and Next Legal. Firstly, uh, ClientSense is a business development and relation intelligence solution for professional service firms. It helps law firms, in particular BD teams, track who knows who within the firm, which is very advantageous from a pursuits perspective. But it also ensures that key clients or referrers aren't neglected by notifying people within the BD team if someone hasn't messaged them in a while through email. His other business, Next Legal, provides independent legal technology advice and support for um, practice management system selection. Prior to setting up both Next Legal and ClientSense, Steve worked as the head of IT at McCullough Robertson and Landers and Rogers. Welcome to the show, Steve. All right. Thanks very much, Paul. Okay. So, a bit of background. Steve and I met through ALTA, which is the Australian Legal Tech Association, and Rob, the other co-host. Steve and I uh, were recently discussing CRM systems at AlterCon, um, their national conference in Melbourne, and thought it'd be a good idea to run an episode on CRM systems in law firms. Now, all three of us have come from in-house roles, whether it's as a COO, a head of IT, or a head of marketing. And as such, we've all been through our fair share of CRM projects in law firms. Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We've obviously interviewed providers in this space, whether uh, whether they're specific to law or not. And quite frankly, we've never seen them work. So, whilst it's not ideal to start on a negative, we'll cut to the chase, Steve. Why do you think CRMs are often so ineffective in law firms? All right. I, look, I, I think here, Paul, there's a, there's a couple of different ways this could be answered. I think there's a short version and a little bit of a, a deeper response to that. I, I, look, in short, I, th- I think really what it comes down to is that the vast majority of lawyers are, are just simply not going to enter the data into a CRM um, that it needs to make it work. So that, that's, my, that's my one, I guess, um, or as simple as I can put it. But then again, I think there's actually some deeper and interesting interconnected sort of reasons as to, to why that's the case. So I look at it and can't get past the fact that law firms are, of course, well connected. They're full of experts. They've got a lot of expert professionals in there that that hold strong, um, deep and trusted relationships. So it's an interesting space in that it's no wonder that law firms have tried or persisted with CRM systems for so long, because I think Mm. the benefits of achieving it are quite large if that can be achieved. So I similarly have been through a number, like we talked about, I've been through a number of CRM projects where where they have, uh, I guess, failed to really 
deliver on the results that they intended to. But I think that firms have had the right intention for a long time. I just really think that the systems haven't been designed around um, lawyers. Um, and I think there's there's a couple of different ways or, or three different ways that I'd view this. I think that there's a human nature aspect to this. So I think that what we've got is lawyers that are simply not salespeople or wanting to be salespeople. So they don't have their monthly KPI of cold calls. They're not focused on a pipeline as such. They're, they're not doing a lot of the things that typically a CRM system has been designed around. So it's been designed around salespeople. And Sorry to interrupt, but um, is that like most salespeople have that, that is their role. They basically go in, sell, and then someone else delivers the um, service. Whereas obviously in a commercial law firm, there isn't that kind of aggressive and constant selling and it's not part of their role. Yeah, I think so. I think that one of the, the components here is that is that simply if you're if you're measured on billings and not so much on KPIs around sales. So um, I, for one, would say that CRM systems. If you look at the the big systems, whether it's um, Salesforce or HubSpot, or any number of these systems, they're not bad systems. They've been designed for a purpose. They're designed to support sales teams, and they do that quite effectively. But I think that the the aspect that, that's being overlooked here is that um, in a law firm, you you don't have a true sales team. It's not to say that lawyers can't sell, and I think that's probably a whole other uh, podcast in itself. I think that lawyers can sell. I think that they're they're expert. Um, well, obviously, yeah, yeah, they're trusted. They're all of those things that I actually think a salesperson aspires to be. But in the end, uh, these CRM systems are designed and and you know honed around what what is someone that comes in and wants to drive and and use that system as their core system, where a lawyer is using their matter or, or document management system is their core system. So I think there's subtleties in there and I even think the acronym in itself. So if you look at, if you Google what does CRM stand for, you should get a response that says something around along the lines of customer relationship management. And I don't think that law firms are aspiring to have customers. I think in the true sense of the word, they have clients, they have deep relationships, they're not transactions. Mm. So that's not to say that a firm that's selling a transactional-based or commoditized style of work wouldn't benefit from a more of a CRM. But, but in, in the end, I think that the subtleties, and while they seem subtle, actually add up to big differences. I'd also say that looking at how the time that a lawyer has, a lawyer doesn't have a lot of time to be entering data into a, a CRM database. So even if the intentions were there, I think that that would also be another challenge. And, and thirdly, which again could open up into a, a whole other podcast in itself, but I, I see that the, the lawyers um, have called it ownership around a relationship. And I think that there's subtleties and, and often the relationships are deep. They're, they've been forged over years. So I don't think that the lawyers really want the firm trying to transpose, call it that relationship into a database and dumbing that down into something that can be put into a note or, or something like it. I think there's more to those relationships. So even if we could solve the first couple of challenges there, um, I still think you're left with the fact that lawyers want those relationships to be respected. And I don't think that they feel they'll be respected if, you know, you've got teams around them that are that are basing or, or gauging that relationship off a couple of entries into a CRM system. Totally agree on a lot of those. And I might pick up on the last one in a second, Steve. One of the things that I've encountered in today's world of technology, you know, people try to avoid redundant data. They try to have everything integrated. But one of, and I'd be interested to know if you've seen this, but one of the things that I've seen a couple of times is 
um, firms try to build their CRM on top of their practice management system. And again, they're totally different beasts and they're designed for two totally different things. And so you just end up populating your CRM with a whole heap of crap. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Have you seen that? Or is it just something unique to the firms that I work with? Yeah, it, it, look, to be honest, we, we, um, the way that clients then started is we, we were working with initially with three different firms and uh, I, what we were looking to do was to prove out or to test whether we could take a data-driven approach and what the pros and cons of that might mean. So, mm-hmm. so Rob, for example, that was one, one aspect. We're saying, well, what is the integration between the matter-related information, you know, whether it's documents or, or correspondence in that manner and, and how does that come into or where does that interlink with with business development and client retention mm. so we we started with a um a view that that we may client sense may not see light of day we we essentially said three years ago that we were looking to prove something out that may become a product if if it looks to to show promise and and can overcome mm. a lot of the challenges that we'd identified so what we found interesting i guess in in that learning over the years is that, that taking the relationship or looking at the communication data that's happening not just between the client but the contact the referrer there's just so much information that never makes its way into the practice mm. management system that that would be one of the problems in in basing it around a practice mm-hmm. management system and also you know if you've got juniors working on a matter and, and that means that they're the ones back and forth with a client more so because they're mm-hmm. transacting is that the same so so really what we found is in looking at communication data in call it in isolation it doesn't mean we can't bring fees in and other related things to give context but certainly as it stands we were more than I guess surprised by the results of just how much business development intelligence could be drawn just from communication, ignoring yeah. matter-related information. Mm. Yep. Yeah. yeah, totally agree. On your last point about, say, partners or senior lawyers having those really tight relationships and, and you know, in a way protecting that and not wanting to commit it to a CRM, mm-hmm. I wonder whether also, yeah, it, it can be quite invasive. You know, I, I've been involved with this Salesforce rollout and, yeah, it was really interesting once you start trying to dig a bit deeper and get a bit more rich information to populate Salesforce. There was a lot of pushback, yeah, which surprised me a lot. But then I think the other thing that dawned on me was that, in effect, you're asking someone who has built this relationship to spend all of their time now downloading it. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Whereas I wonder whether, like, I, for my relationship management, I use a trolley board. You know, and I just move cards across columns mm-hmm. and it works fantastically well because I'm not having to commit hours and hours to download the information that I have in my head. I can just do it. So, yeah, so I wonder whether that's the other thing. That's a really interesting point, Rob. What we were, um, I guess, in in looking at the invasiveness, I guess, of, of mm-hmm. communication data. So what, what it meant was that was absolutely one of the challenges that we first expected to hit was, mm-hmm. okay, when, if we can see that someone has or hasn't had communication with an external person, is that infringing on someone's relationship or, or is it doing something other? What we found is that because we don't have, um, we don't focus, first thing we deliberately decided not to do was to read the content of the email and and that was by design because the benefit 
in doing so almost negated the trust factor from yeah. the, the lawyers yep. within the firm. So what we find is that by having a sense, so if, for example, um, you know, using client sense, I understand that, that Rob and I have met or, or we've had a couple of emails back and forth, then the respect from the firm is to then understand at a human level, what is that? You know, I don't think that can actually be easily transcribed into a system, even with all the time and effort in the world. So what we've got is we've actually got lawyers saying that I like the fact that the BD team or other have to come back to me and ask me, hey, looks like you know someone, what do you know? Yeah. Mm. And it's, so it's almost in, in the irony here is that despite the level of technology that goes into that, we're, we're almost pushing back to being, um, to coming back to the grassroots of what is, you know, very human to human. Yeah, no, I like it. And as you say, like at, at one level it might appear invasive, but it's just so efficient from the lawyer's time as well. Yes. You know, they're not having to, like, Download all the everything they know and and populate fields. It's just yeah. you come to them. Yeah. The reality is, what do you actually do with that information? Especially if it's not one hundred percent right. So, what do you mm-hmm. what do you do with an information that fifteen calls were made this month, yeah. and this yeah. was the context of the calls, and this was the context of the emails? I mean, you, no. And, and, and what BD person has enough time to <laughs> sort of trawl through all that? Let alone a lawyer. That's right. And and the other thing, and again, these were all, all learnings as we went, is we realised that because if something's data-driven and I, for example, do a search to learn, do we know someone at company X? Um, if I find no result in client sense, that doesn't mean, um, well, that's different to no result out of the CRM. In the CRM, that means um, either we haven't or someone hasn't entered it. But when I get no result in client sense, I can at least be sure um, that there's been no email exchange in the last X number of um, months or years. And from there, so I can make a decision, but I think in capturing all of that, um, there's almost a view that it's better to have that information with no effort than it is to, you know, like you point out, Paul, if you could, if you entered all this information in, I think you'd be expending a whole lot of time and effort and you still wouldn't be sure that you've captured everything in any case. So mm. yeah, it's, it's quite an interesting thing. So just changing tact a little, one of the hardline viewpoints, which I don't agree with is that technology and relationships don't mix. And I kind of think we've, I guess, proven that well, a little bit. Use but... Tinder then? So. <laughs> 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 um, well, email is still the most commonly used form of communication and phone calls are usually followed by emails mm. or appointments are set by emails. Instructions are often briefed by email. So I think we can safely say that email and um, relationships mix and email is mm. obviously a form of technology. Yeah. Also, from a marketing perspective, LinkedIn can be incredibly powerful when used properly. And I know that search engine optimization or just search in general and email marketing are still by a long shot the largest source of traffic to law firm websites. So it's not technology that's the issue, but it seems that it is CRM. um, And I guess the way CRM technology is implemented in law firms, that's the problem. Steve, what are your thoughts around that? Yeah, look, I, firstly, firstly, I would agree um, that I don't think relationships and technology are at odds. Um, one of the learnings, which, to be honest, took me just too long to realise, but as the head of IT, I, I didn't, I guess, understand and, and, you know, here, here we, we're quick to 
I guess, have a go at lawyers, uh, you know, for their lack of, you know, ability or want to, to adopt technology. But from an IT point of view, let's not pretend that we're, we don't have the best communication skills. Um, you know, it's fair to say that we, we, we might at times not communicate effectively. And, and I think that's really where things, um, one, one area that I thought it was at, at odds, it, as I say, it took me a long time to realize that when I was giving, say, a video conferencing system to a lawyer or to a partner and saying, here you go, here's a system that'll let you meet with someone, I, I think what wasn't explained to them effectively was that it wasn't to replace or it wasn't to be better than an in-person meeting and no one, um, at least in my team, was implying it was. Um, however, I don't think we explained that it was really just to um, supplement where there couldn't be um, you know, and a face-to-face meeting. It was to provide a meeting um, platform which was not meant to be better than meeting face-to-face, but it was certainly um, there for you when it just wasn't possible. And so I don't think that technology and relationships are at odds. I, I just think they don't compete. I think that um, we use yep. technology or should use technology in the absence of, of that human interaction that should still be king. Makes a lot of sense. Okay. Um, I want to shift the conversation now to marketing and legal tech. So, as I said before, we're both members of Ulta, um, and many of the other members operate in the space of either practice management systems or document automation systems, communication systems, etc. Very few focus on marketing and the client relationship side of things, for example, like building tech that supports client relationships as opposed to, I guess, that delivery of legal work. Added to this, you've got a legal industry that's going through some rapid change in itself. Do you think we're likely to see more entrants in this marketing and legal tech space? Yeah, I, I think we will. I think we'll see a lot of that. Um, and I mean, if you really just look at the <clears throat> the fact is that um, you need the work to have a problem around doing Correct. the work. So Correct. <laughs> it would make sense to me that you would focus your your um, investment around getting work and, and then how to fulfil it. So I think that the in the legal um, tech space and, and, you know, I guess even if I broaden that out to professional services, um, I would say that, yeah, I think there will be a lot more um, focus on, on these types of solutions coming in. Um, I think that uh, where it'll differ, though, is that I don't think we're going to see so much of a, um, a product, um, sort of a, a specific product offering style of, of um, way forward. I think what we'll be seeing is we'll be seeing a lot more technology companies working with law firms in order to achieve or solve particular problems. So really, um, I think it's that collaboration in in doing so that that's really going to explore or that's where I think the, the solutions are going to come from. I don't think that we can expect to see a Microsoft or, or someone like that come into the legal tech space or, or professional services space offering up solutions which really actually require that context. And I think that's where, yes, we will see a lot more entrants, um, but I think we're going to see them coming in, um, having deep collaboration or, or being sort of co-developed with law firms between firms and, and providers. So, Steve, do you see bespoke solutions, so software companies working with actually just one law firm on a particular product to help them with their client base? Or do you mean, is it more like a system that's going to help multiple firms, like a product, but they're going Mm. to be um, sort of entrenched, like the ideas are going to actually come from the law firms themselves rather than yeah, look, I think that, um, if I'm to be really upfront, the, some of the, the best features that we've got today in ClientSense, for example, come from law firms. They don't come yep. from our yep. developers. They don't come from 
um, us ourselves. And, and I don't think that's anything to be ashamed of. I'm actually proud of the fact that they've come from um, business development or, or management teams within the firm. So I think that if, you know, we expect law firms to be very client-centric, we talk about it all the time, there's a lot of hype around lawyers and law firms being client-centric. Um, I think that tech providers are going to need to do that also. They're going to need to stop and, and get less... Um, concerned around their, their tech and more interested in the solution it provides or the, or the people it's there to help. So from what I can see, I, as I say, I, I having worked with firms for a number of years, um, I, I don't think that we would have a product as such if it weren't for the input from the firm. So um, my view is that you can't find niche or you can't find solutions that really um, are fit without that understanding. So it's either, I think there'll be a couple of things. I think there will be platform, there'll be certainly a platform play where there's um, a certain offering made to firms as a product and then there'll be an element of bespoke on top of that where a firm might see a slightly different um, adjustment to that. But ultimately what we discovered in working with firms is that we what we were solving was was solving more than the, more than the challenges facing just the firms we're working with alone. It was much broader than that. So Steve, your other business, Next Legal, provides consulting services to law firms around selecting software, particular PMS systems. I'd like to ask a question about that, but broaden it out a little. Mm-hmm. So you've been an IT manager at two national firms. The legal tech space is obviously changing. So you've worked as a software developer Oh, as a software company, as an IT manager, and as a consultant. If you were to go back in-house, though, what would you be looking for from legal tech providers? So what are the key things you'd kind of want to see? Having had that differing experience and really having worked as a consultant, um, there's been a lot that I think I would now look at quite differently. Um, so I know that what, what was interesting for me is that I'd have providers pitching different software solutions to me on a, on a daily or hourly basis. And, <laughs> and, and, and what, it, what the challenge was is that there was no reward for buying a lot of software. So I didn't have a KPI that said, please buy 10 new pieces of software every week and mm-hmm. you get to keep your job. So what was happening is that from an internal point of view, I really wanted solutions. I didn't want software, believe it or not. I, I wanted things that could solve the challenges we had. And so <clears throat> what I found really interesting is that uh, particularly working as a consultant is that I had an, a number of different firms that would, excuse me, <clears throat> excuse me, um, start again there. Um, so what I found really interesting is that I would, uh, as a consultant, I had a lot of firms engage um, our team to help them choose software. And in helping the firm choose software, some of the things we had to point out is that the, the software alone was not really what you were buying. What you were buying often was the software, the, the team that supports it um, and, and everything around it. And even though that seemed a little abstract to firms, they were thinking they were buying just the software. The reality and something that was really interesting is that the, the firms that were engaging us to help them choose a new system, when you asked them what was wrong with the current system, what was going on, they tell you that they that, that the relationship had failed. They they didn't like dealing with provider X. And, um, and so there was very much a, a relationship breakdown there that I found fascinating. And so then we dig into the system and we'd ask the question, so what is it that, that's wrong here? And they might say, um, it can't do function X or Y. And 
that that sometimes you'd realize isn't right. You'd say, hold on a minute, that I know this software can do that. And you'd ask another firm or you'd ask the provider and could mm. confirm. And then I thought, well, this will be interesting when we explain to the firm that's just engaged us to change systems because it can't do something. When we tell them it can do that thing, um, that should be a good answer, right? That should yeah. save the, you'd save yeah. your, you know, hundreds of thousands <laughs> of dollars and a whole lot of pain. And then what they'd say to us is, well, that makes it worse. So we've been using this provider for 10 years and they've never told us it can do that. And so uh, it, what's really interesting to me is that, you know, none of that has anything to do with software. That has everything to do with communication and relationships and other things. And so I guess what, what I think is important and knowing that the number one reason firms were swapping or changing systems was the relationship, I would really dig into that. And I know that sounds odd if we're talking about software, but the software, let's say that, you know, there's a lot of software out there. We're, we're going through a stage now where we're just going to have, um, we're just going to be drowned in, in different software solutions. What you really need is you need people that can help you get the most from that. Um, because the reality is that sister, uh, sorry, firms were using, I would say, somewhere between probably 20 and 25% of what their systems were capable of anyway. So why are you changing system if it's got enough help? Headroom for you to get more than you need from it. It was because what they really wanted was they help. They wanted people to help make sense of it and actually put it to use. So, I, I guess really for me, what stood out is that the system itself, the capability, wasn't that relevant. It was how much value they were getting from it, and there were people needed to to do that. There were humans needed to to intervene and make sure that firms were doing it. So, my I guess coming back to what would I suggest that a firm does? I would suggest that a firm talks to another firm about the support that they get. And I don't mean do they respond to a help desk query. I mean, do does the, does the provider help them extract value? I've seen providers now offering unlimited training for their systems and I think that's a good thing to do. I think that's where the breakdown is. So really what I would suggest is that firms ask about what the relationship looks like post-sales. Um, you might have a salesperson say, I don't know. I normally flick it to someone and I, I run a mile. But but that's what's been the problem, I think, is that we've got a lot of systems that have been sold. And I think that because of a software as a service model, we're moving closer towards a relationship in that once upon a time you would buy software, you would pay a lot for that license and then you would pay a percentage every year for the updates and maintenance. But that's not a sustainable model. So you've got a lot of um, older systems out there now that are really not sustainable anymore um, because of the fact that they don't drive enough revenue from their existing clients to make it worth um, servicing them properly, if that makes sense. So I think there's so what I think software as a service has done is is actually yes, it's it's on demand, it's all those things things, but it should encourage the right behaviour and, and the right desire from both parties, yeah. So when, in terms of this, the service that you have for practice management systems, do you, are there certain criteria or filters you use? So like, you know, firm size, is that an issue? Uh, yes, the, absolutely. So the, the size of firm is probably one of the most um, important things when it comes to choosing a relevant system. And that's because you simply can't um, create a system that, that is going to fit for a small firm and a large firm. They've got yeah. very different needs and also practice areas because um, there's a bit of a joke in yeah. the in the IT management space, but everyone was looking for a one-size-fits-all approach, but what mm -hmm. you got in the end was a one-size-fits-no-one. Um, yeah. so, so you didn't even keep one group happy. So it, I think what we're going to see is we're going to see software specialising into its, into its right, right 
space. So um, in my mind, it's not likely that you're going to have a system that supports high-end um, advisory work and also commoditized work yeah. um, in another area. So for me, we're going to see a lot of systems that are honed in on those different scenarios. And look, that makes life a little bit harder for IT and that you're going to have more systems than, than you've probably had before. Um, and they'll need integration. But, you know, if they're the right systems and, and um, then they can be integrated. And, and I, I think that that's the way we'll, we'll definitely be moving. Mm. So does, does the firm's IT roadmap, for want of a better term, also play a role? So if, you know, you might have firm A that's sort of a very agile boutique firm, you know, they wanting to be totally in the cloud and they're all, um, you know, remote or distributed as opposed to firm B, which is a mega firm, you know, does work that involves Commonwealth secrets and they can't, it's still got to be that sort of um, wide area network rather than in the cloud. You know, do those sort of things impact on it as well? They do, yeah. Look, there's a, there, there is a lot. Um, in the end, there's a lot of different aspects that need to go into it. So mm. you've got um, – but again, I would always say that um, probably focusing less on – call it, say, cloud and more on remote access or more mm -hmm. on um, what I actually need. So if I need mobility, if I need to enter time mm -hmm. um, in a mobile fashion or I need to get access to documents. Um, so I think in taking just that step back one, you know, at a mm -hmm. business layer, what is it we're trying to do? Do we need to work with clients? Do we have um, people working from all different parts of the world? All these things come into it. Um, and I think that I, I see a lot of firms, actually I do see a lot of firms saying, they want to be cloud for no other reason than they want to say they're cloud, thinking that that would mean <laughs> that would mean that they they'd attract the right staff and the right clients. And I I don't tend to agree that that would be yeah. a point of differentiation. But but in fact, look, if if you looked at the benefits of cloud, I would agree. If you if you said these are the things I'm looking to achieve, mm. um, but I do see a lot of firms, probably to your point, Paul, around the whole. Um, you know, PR stunts and, and whatnot that go on with legal tech. I think that, you know, if you come back and focus on what it is you're trying to do it, trying to do, um, ten, ten, then what tends to happen is the software will will follow. Um, but on your point, Rob, I think there's definitely different size systems and, and different um, systems that are, that are better at certain things. Um, and you're not really choosing the best system, if I'm to be blunt, you're choosing the best system for you. So yeah. there is no best system. Yes. You were just trying to choose the one that fits your own needs. Um, and that's that, that was the consulting piece, yeah. I have one final question on practice management systems. Yeah. <laughs> well, I hope you answered this correctly. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Which is code for, code for what I believe. Anyway. <laughs> I've, look, several times I've had firms that I work with say that they want to give their client total transparency around WIP and billings and, and a client portal, et cetera, et cetera. I'm yet to find a client that actually really wants that. Like if, they, they, if you put it to them, to a client that will give you this, of course they'll say, yes, that's good. But then the, the, the amount of uptake by clients is abysmal. Mm -hmm. All right. So on, on your point, I, a number of years ago, um, took 
took um, or went into the exercise of looking at for all the times we'd tended, for all the times we'd um, put forward the idea that we would give a portal and we would give this, that and the other. Yeah. So we would do a whole lot of effort to ensure that the client had that. And then in reality, when you looked at the logs, you'd go, oh, hold on, this is not quite being used as as yeah. intended. Um, yeah. And is that okay? Because we still won the work. I mean, that's, that's yeah. um, you know, <laughs> what, what was the point of, of the yeah. offer? But look, in, in reality, um, I tend to agree. I think that if you are offering your client something that only transfers the work back to them, then I think yep. that it's it, it's not going to work. And I see that uh, what I don't like hearing is a firm saying, we tried a portal, it didn't work because we served up documents online and then had them have another set of username and passwords that they'd go in and download. And, and you realize it was easier for the client to contact the firm and say, hey, can you send that document? Yeah. And yes. it came back within 15 minutes anyway. That's it. So, so, um, if you're not actually solving something that that's important to them, I would say, look, I have seen it work. Um, Landon Rogers did a, a great job of that, even at the time when I was okay. there. Um, so they, that was for a particular key client. I'll say, not not mm. you know, this was not a shotgun approach of yeah. every, every yeah. client needs this. Um, but certainly, where there was a deep client relationship and the commute, and I guess the conversation was had to discuss what is it you need, what would make sense, and all of that. Um, but yeah, I'm a little bit cynical around the idea that we will offer complete transparency and that's actually what the client wants um, and even if they say they want that will they use that as you say is another another question so I'd, I'd really be looking to again go back to the beginning and go what is it we're trying to solve here not not what we can provide and then is there a way this can help sell our right. services mm. correct answer <laughs> good, good. I wasn't sure, Rob, whether that was <laughs> what you wanted to hear or not. <laughs> um, Steve, so as I discussed, you've um, been in-house as an IT manager, you've acted as a consultant to law firms, and now you've founded a software company. Mm-hmm. What would you say are the main differences between each role? Look, I found each have got their own challenges. I was I was a critic of the providers when I was the buyer. Um, I really was. Um, yep. I remember thinking they had nothing better to do than to hound me about whether I'd be signing for something or not. And they never seemed to ask me the question, you know, how can I help you? What are your challenges? They seemed to be asking, how can we get this deal across the line? And so that was my sort of um, my experience at least or my, my um, how it, it worked for me on the inside. So look, I think um, then moving to a consulting role um, was was really, to be honest, I think there was a, a massive amount learnt there because that's where what I was able to do was actually to work with a firm around what they need and then bring different providers in um, with the benefit of listening to what the provider was offering and then at the end of it, hear how the firm had perceived it. So what they saw the offering to be, which was fascinating. Um, so just being able to understand. And so again, um, you know, like it or not from an IT point of view, but but very off, very rarely, sorry, would a firm um, be choosing what I would say was necessarily the best tech. So I'm looking at it as the advocate saying, look, I'm, your, I'm here as the consultant to help you choose software. And I wouldn't say they were choosing the best tech or, or preferencing the best tech every time. Sometimes there was preference given to the way in which it was presented or all these other things that just, you know, were really interesting learnings around, you know, we'd have if some, you know, how easy the provider was to deal with. Um, would they come in and meet you on site? Would they do it remotely? All these 
these things, you'd be surprised how much they played in um, to a firm's decision around the software. So that that was interesting um, in itself. And then as a provider, I guess what I wanted to do was really take what I'd experienced and learnt and and try not to do some of those things and to try to do some of the other things. So it might be no surprise that the client sense doesn't have a lock-in contract because I hated nothing more than having to sign up for three years of on software, almost sight unseen. I might have looked at it three or four times. That's okay, um, but sight unseen, and and we'd end up with shelfware. We'd literally end up with software that we'd committed to buy, and so I guess from a relationship you know, experiencing also that the relationship was why people were leaving their their tech providers. And then I don't think a three-year commitment actually encourages the right relationship either I, I wanted to make sure that yeah we were we wanted to make sure that we were delivering on merits and that the firm could walk at any point um not because they were hoping they wouldn't and and our job is to keep them and I think that that shift is something that I brought through and had to bring through in terms of being then a you know a, a software provider but I'm also quite aware of the fact that it's not just the software that they're they're buying so I think they're very different um but probably one of the most fascinating things is how they interplay I think that there's a need for that to come together. I think whilst we've got um, providers on one side of the fence, we've got law firms on the other, and um, either the provider and or the client or the firm not understanding really what the client wants, I think it's a recipe for disaster. So I, I think that there'll be more of that intertwining of those roles. And, and I think that um, providers are going to need to be, as I said earlier, a bit more or a lot more collaborative um, and be prepared to go in and understand what the firm is really trying to solve, not just flog software. Um, and I think that that's when that happens, I think we're going to see an explosion of um, real innovation, not not marketed rubbish innovation. Okay, Steve, just got a lightning round of questions just to get a little bit more of an insight into you. What's the best piece of business advice you've ever received? I think, look, I've probably received a lot of advice that I hold on to, but um, a, a friend and, and consultant that we've used, um, Justin Barlow, I think because he was a friend, um, he was able to deliver this quite bluntly. When he started working with us around client sense and, and developing that up and commercialising it, um, he got me to step through uh, what it is and how it all works. And, and I think as a tech guy, I gave him, you know, a bit of a, you know, and we think it's so wonderful and look how cool this is and all the rest. And he just looked me in the eye and said, I don't think anyone gives a crap about your tech. How does it help? And that to be told that as a, as a tech provider, I think is fantastic. I, I think yeah. it's true. I think everyone needs to remember that. And, you know, I'm, I'm the same. I, I don't think that there's any loyalty for the tech or, or any care for what it, you know, how it works. There's no pat on the back for that. So I'd say um, just remembering that no one actually cares about what you do, but how it helps them. Yeah. Good advice. All right. What was your first ever job? All right. So I grew up in a small town in Victoria. So at the age of 15, I'd work after school at a, at a local supermarket, carrying the groceries out to people's cars with them. So you'd imagine <laughs> you've got a lot of elderly people who, um, you know, would come into town and the owner and, and friend of our family would always tell me that people came into town to socialize and to buy groceries while they were there, not the other way around. So he, <laughs> he, um, he didn't mind how long it took me and, 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 
and took me to walk the lady to her car or whatever it may be. And if she stopped to buy raffle tickets along the way and and my arms were nearly dropping off, but she's, she's happily buying a ticket and has a chat to everyone along the way. He saw that as part of the service. And so, yes, that was my first job, but I I think that taught me a lot around um, service and, and what it took to, to run a business. He's a very smart businessman. There was no, um, yeah, he wasn't giving anything away. He knew how, how to do it. Yeah, very early introduction to relationship marketing. Oh, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, tremendous. If somebody knew you really well, what's the one thing that they would know about you that others may not? Now, I'm assuming your your uh, listeners are not judgmental and therefore I can say what I need to say. Um, no, no, we don't judge. No, if no one judges, then I can be honest. Look, I'm actually a huge Lego fan. I have been um, my whole life. And and from time to time, or you, my wife might say more often than that, but I, I like to purchase a, a large Lego kit. And when I build that, I really enjoy the build process I, I enjoy just stepping through it it's a little it's a cathartic mm. sort of experience and so yeah that's probably one thing that I don't lead with as you imagine but um <laughs> but, but it is true and um yeah so I, I could have said I enjoy my mountain biking which is true but more people would know that so now I'm, I'm um I do in fact like a large lego build thank you for your candor yeah it's <laughs> probably a few amateur psychologists out there working their way through that. <laughs> <laughs> um, can you nominate another legal industry leader that you hold in great respect that you think we should try to talk to? Yeah, look, I um, I think I've been very fortunate to be surrounded by people a lot smarter than me and a lot of people that I would actually recommend. Um, I listen to your podcast, so I know Joel's already, Joel Broski's already been um, suggested and I think he, he'd be a great person to talk to. Um, another one then would be Anne-Marie David, the CEO of the College of Law. I think she's a fascinating lady. She's got a lot of insights into um, the legal industry and, 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 and a lot to do with how um, junior lawyers will be working through up the system and, and and I think it's quite a fascinating space. And the other one, um, James Rimmer of Cooper Grace Ward, I, I, um, we've worked with him for a number of years and, and, I, and I find him to be a very um, or a, a huge wealth of knowledge and a, and a great guy. Oh, brilliant. Thank you very much. If you could lead any company in the world other than Client Sense or Next Legal, which would that be? So given I've already declared my cards on this, I'd love to lead Lego. Um, <laughs> so, so I, and the reason for that is because I think they've got a fantastic brand. I think they've got amazing loyalty. Um, uh, they're a fascinating story and they've always been for a long time. They were family owned and then they had a non-family member CEO come in and turn the business around. Um, but I also think, and, and you'd wonder why as a technologist I'd say that, I, I would say Lego because I think their challenge is to actually um, – is to is to fight against the digital disruptors. So every kid will want to play with an iPad maybe more than Lego, and I think that's something that's that's quite a challenge for them, but it's achievable. And so I look at it and I love what they're doing with robotics in schools and other things. I think they've got something, um, if they can do it, I think they'll go or continue to go a long way. Um, but, yeah, that, that, would be, that would be the company that I would choose. Yeah, I don't disagree. I'm sitting here at the dining table looking at a half-complete RV, um, what looks like a helicopter, but I might have to get your assistance to finish them off. 
so so it was a near and dear um, uh, admission to you, Rob. Then, if if you've got that in your own home, oh, or to Archer, who hasn't quite completed them yet. There uh, <laughs> we go. So I pretend my kids are into Lego. I'm not sure if they are, but I get to buy them. <laughs> and then, in, in air quotes, help um, help build them. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and finally, and most importantly, if listeners want to connect with you. What's the best way to get in touch? Uh, look, initially LinkedIn. If, if we're not, um, if we if we've had no comms before, look, is always a good way. But look, any either LinkedIn or email. I'm not sure whether you'll you'll put it in the the comments yep. or so on. Yeah, show notes. Yep. yep. If you'll do that, then email and and look. To be honest, um, yeah, more than happy and always enjoy chatting with people, um, irrespective of you know their background, and, and always like to learn more about what others are up to. So I would certainly encourage it. Um, yeah. Brent, thanks so much for, for agreeing to come on today, Steve. I um, wish you the best of success. I think what you're doing is heading, definitely heading in the right direction. So thank you very much. Cracking product. Yep. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> thank you. And thanks very much for having me on the show. I, I love what you're doing and, and, I, and I wish you continued success with it because it's, uh, it's a good thing and, um, yeah, and, and more of it. Thank you. Thanks, thanks Steve. Steve. Thanks. Bye. Thank you for listening to Professionally Challenged. Visit our website at www.professionallychallenged.com and please leave us a review on iTunes. Until next time, bye for now.